0: Welcome back to the EM Stud Podcast brought to you by CDEM. This is Dr. Nate, and I am so fortunate to have with me Dr. Adam Kellogg, who is presently the Associate Program Director up at Bay State Medical Center associated with Tufts School of Medicine and also Chair of the Accord Medical Student Advising Task Force. Adam, welcome to the show.
1: Nate, it's uh, great to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, this is a really you know, kind of a interesting opportunity
0: Great. We're certainly happy to have you on. I've actually been a fan of your blog for a long time now, uh, EM Advisor.
1: Yep, EM Advisor at uh, blogspot.com. The trick is if you keep your blog on Google, you go right to
0: the top of the search results. Great website, full of lots of useful information. I send my students there all the time. Thank you. Now, tell me first before we start, just uh, because a lot of our listeners are students. And uh, might be curious to hear this, can you tell me a little bit more about maybe your background, where you did your training?
1: Yeah, I'm uh, from New England. I'm born in Massachusetts and then stayed there through medical school at University of Massachusetts in Worcester. Then went to residency training in, uh, at Bay State in Springfield, Mass., sort of the other end of the state from Boston for those who aren't from, uh, in the Northeast. Um, and then I stayed there after training. I graduated in 2007. A couple of years in, I took over the student clerkship, and that's where I really got into the student advising piece. And then about four years ago, started the EM Advisor blog, and right around the same time as I started doing that, I'd sort of put together the content, had been giving... It all started as a talk I'd go and give to emergency medicine interest groups, and then said, well, I keep doing the same thing. Let me put it onto this whole internet thing and get it out there for people to look at and kind of refer back to... And then I got offered the associate program director job and sort of decided what, you know, what direction I wanted to go into. And so I did that, but have not been able to give up the student advising piece. And I still like to switch hats and to get really involved in doing that, which led to joining the student advising task force when court started that about three years ago.
0: Now, why did you choose emergency medicine? We have a lot of students that listen to this podcast that maybe aren't 100 percent sure they want to go into EM. So your thoughts on why EM is the best choice?
1: Well, if you've already committed to medicine, then that's the way to go. There's no better specialty. Um, I think a lot of people come at this from either get lured in by their experiences that sort of fits what kind of medicine they like to practice, or they came in kind of you know knowing from the day one exactly what they wanted to be. I sort of kind of knew before going to school that uh, going to med school that EM was going to be the right fit. I had sort of that open mind where. Everything I did for rotations, I liked all my rotations. It's something I hear from students all the time now, especially the ones who seem sort of well suited to EM. You kind of like everything, and then you get that aha moment when you first get to do your first real EM rotation. You say, "Okay, this is the place for me." But you know, uh, a lot of people go into medicine. You know, they've got real deep interest in one area. But I'm think of myself as sort of a, like an old school generalist. You know, I really that that idea of the you know 365. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, anybody, anywhere, anytime really sort of resonates. You know, if you want to be the person who can respond on an airplane when they ask for help and be able to do something, um, if that has appealed to you to do that, um, then this is the right specialty for you.
0: Absolutely. Good stuff. Uh, Now, one of the reasons why we wanted to have you on this show so badly is because of your. Uh, work with the CORD Student Advisory Task Force. Could you tell me a little bit more about what that is and who's involved?
1: So this is a joint group put together by CORD about three years ago. So it's a relatively new group they put together. Is a direct response to uh, the huge increase in number of applications that all the programs were seeing. Programs could, didn't feel like they were able to do justice to the interview process. Everybody, you know, everybody who's a program director is also a local advisor for their students their students were more panicked, um, and understandably. And it led to Cord, part of Cord's response to this was to put together a group of people to work on this and try and come up with some solutions. And it's a interdisciplinary, so it's pulling in people from multiple organizations. It's clerkship directors, it's residency program directors, residents through EMRA and through the AEM RSA, uh, you know, kind of trying to represent everybody. There's a few medical students through EMRA who are participating. You know, It's a kind of a broad group, which is... It gives a lot of the projects, you know, good balance. You know, we've got kind of all the stakeholders in this are represented, and it's worked really well. And so you know, the big aim has been to improve the quality and availability of advising to, for all students you know, whether they have local EM advising, whether they, you know, that they want sort of additional information for other areas, whether they don't have anything available to them. That's sort of a really important audience for this, or the folks who are places that don't have residency programs, that don't have, you know, great people like you giving them advice to the local students.
0: And I think that's incredibly important that uh, students realize that we are working at really a national level to try and uh, improve students' advising and try to help them uh, get into an emergency medicine residency program of their choice. Now, you've been uh, fairly involved in analyzing, I guess, match statistics, for lack of a better term, also. Is that right?
1: Yeah. um, As sort of part of doing this, you know, one of the early things we worked on, and especially the first couple of years for the task force, was figuring out what's actually going on and trying to dig into this and looking at the NRMP, the National Residency Match Program databases, and trying to kind of cull some meaning out of this. You know, what's really happening? Is it really too many applications or is it more applicants? You know, what's really kind of causing this surge in how many applications that the programs are seeing and sort of then the resulting problems that come from that? And so as part of that, we looked at that and we wrote, uh, there were some presentations here at Court a couple years ago. And then, just a little over a year ago, we wrote a piece up for EM advi- uh, for EM resident, the EMRA publication, that's still uh, available on the uh, on their website called "Diagnosing the Match." Wrote that with uh, Zach Giroux, uh, resident now out at Denver, who's been heavily involved in uh, in all of this kind of you know student advising things. He's been working with us from kind of from the very beginning, back when he was a medical student working with EMRA, and looked at a lot of the data and sort of tried to figure out some answers for this, you know, what's really going on in the match.
0: Yeah, that's a a great piece. I actually share that uh, article, that blog post with uh, all of my students because it's just so insightful to have an understanding of maybe why emergency medicine is becoming more competitive. Um,
1: I think it's definitely becoming more competitive to the individual applicant, but in a lot of ways, I think it's almost becoming sort of more stressful you know there's you know, then what we've seen with the numbers is there's definitely an increase in the number of applicants out there who are applying to em but there's also an increase in the number of programs and program spots as well and those numbers are going up pretty similarly there's you know the if, you, if in the article you can see there's the two lines are plotted there and they climb pretty much together and so there's not a huge change there where the big uh, increase we're seeing is in the number of applications that students are doing and then the number of interviews they're actually completing it wasn't that long ago that 10 interviews was considered to be more than enough and anything more than that. And people are just wasting their time. And now people do 15, 18, you'll have folks doing very like competitive applicants doing, you know, almost 20 interviews. And using up all those interview spots, there's a finite number of interview spots out there. So what you have is, we sort of look at it as there's a all of the interviews get focused in this small group of highly competitive people at the very beginning. You know, on November 1st, when people, you know, when the interviews start coming out in earnest, or October 15th now, and they're all in the hands of a small number of people. And then everybody else is waiting for those interviews to be given back, to be released, and you know, back to the programs, and trickle down to everybody else. And so it feels like it's hugely competitive, but the number of spots really hasn't changed that much relative to other applicants. It's just harder to get. The right people to the right spots, because as programs, they're all looking at the same small population initially, and then going back and, you know, that it's January and everybody's scrambling around and trying to fit people in so that they actually interview a more diverse population.
0: Sure. Well, that's, uh, that's reassuring, sort of, I, I guess. <laughs> now, along those lines, because of this phenomenon where we're seeing uh, about proportionally the same number of students applying to Proportionally increasing number of residency spots, but those students are having to put out more applications, go on more interviews. Can you tell me what really defines a competitive student these days, and has that changed?
1: Uh, I think it probably has. I mean, EM in general has definitely become a more competitive, uh, more competitive field. Has drawn in you know better and better applicants, but there's still space for lots of people in this and. There's a, you know, I mean, you can sort of paint a picture of kind of, uh, I guess it's easiest to paint a picture of an ideal applicant and then maybe, you know, sort of see where folks, you know, don't quite reach that. But the above average board scores, like a step one in the 240s or higher, having two slows where they did really, really well. So two standardized letters from two separate rotations, a home rotation and then an away rotation both that are in with the application in a timely fashion, they're they're waiting sort of on October 1st and the Dean's letter comes out, and both of those rotations reflecting really good performance, you know, uh, honors performance with a top 10% or a top third global ranking, a clear picture of someone who is, you know, above average compared to the applicant pool. And then there's lots of other stuff that matters too, but those are the big things because those are what drive getting interview offers and the kind of for, as a student applying the most important driver for what's competitive is what does it take to get your foot in the door once you're there then all that all the other stuff really does matter because you know who you are as a, as a as a person who you are as a whole applicant is easier to tell but it's really hard in that you know looking at just on paper on ERAS to really sort people out then you get more and more applications you have more and more applications to look at and you're more likely to rely on objective things like slow rankings and USMLE scores, even though we all agree that USMLE scores don't predict whether someone's going to be a good doctor. We all accept that and then, to some extent or other, use them anyways.
0: So what do we say now to those students who uh, are maybe, they're not AOA, they've gotten mostly passes in their third year, maybe a few high passes, they're looking at a step one score, you know, maybe 215 or a little bit higher. What can we tell them to improve their chances of getting those interviews and then successfully matching into EM?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, a, that's an at-risk applicant. You know, that's someone who's certainly, you know, I agree, sort of paint a good picture. You know, above that is sort of the folks who are your average applicant who are going to be fine with the average step scores and, you know, kind of mostly high passes with an honors here and a pass there. For the, somebody you describe who sort of really is kind of below average in clinical grades, below average in board scores... You know, they're in a lot of trouble as an applicant. They're going to, you know, they may struggle to get interviews. They may wait a long time to get their interviews. What I would recommend to people is that they choose uh, how they apply and apply, uh, what we, sort of the uh, way we put it is applying wisely. Make good decisions in the applications. You know, this is if you are a applicant who's at risk, you shouldn't be doing a whole bunch of applications to what you'd sort of perceive as highly competitive programs. You know, things like the West Coast, where there's a, a small number of programs in a, in, a, in a geographic area that has a lot of people who want to be there. Those programs are all going to be more competitive, and so that might not count as a program. You know, it would count as an application because you got to spend the money to send it out, but you shouldn't count that. If you want to apply, never say to tell someone you can apply there, but don't count it to your core of actual reasonable programs. You have to sort of adjust your expectations and get a broad collection of programs to apply to of across the whole spectrum of what you sort of perceive them as being competitive
0: well hey that's actually a great segue into my next question here how does an applicant choose which programs to apply to
1: that's i mean that's the most kind of the most important question and really hard because you can't objectively assess the programs in the same way that the programs can assess you you have to give them all this information but it's hard to know which are the ones that are really competitive, and it's going to be you're only going to get a, get in there for an interview if you're average or above average, and which are the places that are going to be much more open-minded. And it can be really hard to tell that off of their website. Every program looks great on their website, and so it can be difficult to figure that out. So one of the things that sort of I, uh, we've tried to do, because the question that comes up all the time, is how do I tell which programs are competitive? And it's it's a really hard thing, and there's no like this is you know we're now outside of the the data part of it, but it's something I end up talking to applicants about a lot as they try to you know sort of apply smarter about it, choosing uh, choosing the places that they target with a, a better distribution of kinds of programs, um, and a lot of it comes down to trying to figure out you know trying to do the guesswork of. Which programs get the most applications? Because that's all that really matters when it comes to what's competitive. You know, it's how many applications they receive, how many, you know, how many other needles are in this, you know, in this haystack with me trying to get sorted out. Um, and sort of the the big things I always highlight as the uh, the things that kind of drive that competitiveness because it's only as competitive as students think it's going to be so you can be a brand new program but if you hit some of the things that make students think you're going to be hard to get into you automatically become hard to get into because it's all perception it's all reputation so if you're in a desirable region where there's a part there's a paucity of programs um, if you have sort of a, a famous em program like if a a you know, really important podcast like EM Stud comes out of your institution, then pe- you know, people know about it. They're going to apply to your institution. Um, if there's a reputation in general, you know, one of the founding programs in emergency medicine, one that people hear about, one that your you know mentors trained at, that's going to get people's attention. If they've got a big name affiliation, which is the it, would it make your mom a proud uh, sort of test? It's the you know, if I told my mom, oh, I'm going to this residency program, she's like, oh, wow? I don't know if it's any good, but I'm really impressed that you're going to have that after your, you know, your name for the rest of your career. That's always going to carry some weight, and it can give you some sense of where you, know, where you think places are going to come in. But it's, you know, at this point, there is no good way to really assess how competitive from a match standpoint they are. Um, I always recommend people starting off because you have so many programs, you know, closing in on 200 programs. Narrowing it down by geography is a really good way to start, because if you pick a geographic area that you're really interested in and apply to all the programs in that geographic area or most of the programs in that geographic area, then you're going to get a distribution of, you know, not only competitiveness in how many applications they receive, but you're going to get a distribution of types of programs, you know, the you know, there's the same things we look at for every applicant—the letters and the scores—but all that other stuff gets reviewed as well in your application. And the things that can stick out—you never know what's going to jump out at somebody who's re- reviewing your application and make them decide they want to bring you in for an interview. And so, having a, you know, having your application in front of a bunch of different types of uh, reviewers is can be really helpful.
0: So maybe uh, one way to go about doing this is to actually sit down with your advisor. Uh, with your application and speak with them one-on-one in terms of, uh, you know, which programs you should be applying to, how broadly you should be applying to. Absolutely. I mean, as
1: much as I think that our blog has been helpful and as great as I know this podcast is and helpful for students, there's no replacement for having a local person who can take a look at everything. absolutely And if possible, you know, you want to do, you know, it's nice to have both. You know, it's good to supplement what you're hearing locally and make sure that it stands up on sort of a national level and what sort of the, you know, the bigger picture recommendations are. But at the same time, having there's nothing better than having that person sort of there who you build a relationship with and who can look at your individual circumstances. Sure,
0: sure. But because I know students are listening to this right now and they're saying, how do I know which programs are the best programs? I mean, do I, do I turn to EMRA? Do I turn to Doximity? Don't turn to Doximity. But do, well, how do I know? It's a know? loaded question. Well, <laughs> your, your thoughts on Doximity?
1: Uh, So I don't feel like Doximity is providing a particularly useful resource to the students. I completely understand why they're out there. We asked students through EMRA, we asked students, you know, do you use Doximity? Um, The most disheartening answer we got was, what's Doximity? Oh, I should go look that up right now. But we asked them if they used Doximity, and a lot of them said they did, and raised the exact same concerns that we had, which is that it's methodologically terrible. It's not, you know, the the way they're ranking programs is basically a popularity contest by alumni. You know, the alumni at the different programs, you know, the higher their, their own alumni sort of said nice things about them, gave them the most likes on Doximity, Facebook equivalent, and the higher ranked they were. And, you know, you could argue that maybe they did come up with a pretty good list. You know, there are great programs at the top of that list too, but it doesn't do students a whole lot of good. And what tend to happen was students who use Doximity ended up applying to more programs than students who didn't. It caused less certainty, less sort of comfort with the whole process. And what one of the big uh, agenda items for the Student Advising Task Force was to participate in Cord's response to to the existence of Doximity. And we're collaborating with EMRA to Im, to improve something they already have. So the, the, the beauty of Doximity is that it is this great nice-looking interface, it's a map, it's searchable, and you can filter out programs based on the criteria they have. The downside is that when they sort it for you and tell you which ones are good, that's not necessarily reliable or individually useful information because it doesn't necessarily tell you as an individual applicant what place is going to fit better. What we're trying to do is make this focus on fit. So we're going to work with Emra. They have this Emra match tool, which is searchable, filterable. It's a big map, that you can then you know, look at all the programs in the country, and we're going to help supply them with characteristics that really matter and that students have told us are really important that are going to be what you can filter and search by, allowing students to find programs that you know fit what they're looking for. If you want a three-year program with ultrasound and uh, a wellness focus, then we're going to, you can check those off as things that you're interested in and be able to search, and it'll spit out those programs for you.
0: So you heard it here, March 7th, 2016, Doximity, maybe not really ready for prime time comparing programs. But would you say that generally, uh, if you're applying to accredited residency programs that, I mean, you're going to get the same training, more or less, you're going to be able to become a good emergency physician, no matter where you go. And, And I think a lot of students wonder if that's really true.
1: I think it is absolutely true that, I mean, it's a new specialty. The ACGME makes the rules. We have a lot of the things, the majority of education things we do as programs are dictated to us. You have to have these types of rotations and do this many intubations. And so those things are going to be standardized. You're going to get good training basically anywhere. You're going to be a competent emergency physician anywhere. Um, where I think the difference is, is in the culture of the programs, it's in the opportunities there. I think that, you know, the your sort of eventual trajectory for your career often changes based upon the kind of program you go through, the culture of that program, the mentors that you meet. And so it, it I think that can have a big impact on it. And that's part of why we really wanted to focus, you know, in sort of this tool is helping people get at least a preview. You have to go and meet the people to really know, you know, go on that interview and really know if it's a place is going to be offer you the right kind of thing, you know, right kind of experience with, that you're going to thrive in. But Starting somewhere to help people narrow down this list because it's overwhelming, and we don't want it to be five years from now that everybody just applies to all 180 programs or 200 by then.
0: I'm going to try and nip this in the bud as best as I can because I know in a few months I'm going to have students in my office telling me, Well, hey, that sounds great, but just what are the numbers? How many uh, ways do I need to do? How many applications do I need to put in? How many interviews do I need to go on? Is there actually Uh, a way to objectify this them to give folks kind of a, a number or a range that they should generally be looking at for these things.
1: I would, I would love to be able to do that. There's definitely information from the data that can sort of give you some, some level of comfort with it. You know, the 2014 data that we sort of, that we crunched that is still, you know, the same trends we saw showed like the magic number, the number of interviews you needed to do, the number of programs you needed to rank in order to feel very comfortable you were gonna match. 95 to 99% chance of matching was 12. So, and that was up from nine just a few years earlier but it's gonna be right around that same ballpark. But it maybe it's gonna be 13 next year. We'll sort of have the 2015 data and be able to look at that. But that's a, that's a big one in terms of how many to target. 10, you're still going to match. You know, the, at seven, you're still most of the time going to match. But it's that certainty number. And that's what the students want, is they want not a 85% chance. They want, and I completely understand, I feel the same way, would want the, where's the 99% number? And that was for like, for allopathic seniors who are applying. That was, you know, as of 2014, that number was 12, was a very comfortable number. And that's a number I give when I talk to students now. It was 10 a couple years ago, and now it's 12.
0: And that, sorry, that also goes for not just number of interviews, but number of programs on your rank list too, correct? So if a student were to go on, say, 10 interviews and only rank 5...
1: It's very brave.
0: <laughs> right. Those better have
1: been five really good interviews. Sure, sure. And you'd have to much rather be an internist than uh, internal medicine doc than going to one of those programs if you're going to leave it off of your list. That had to be a really bad interview day.
0: Now, in terms of number of slows, and we will in fact talk about slows on a different episode. But number of slows, and now that can vary by programs a little bit, but generally, how many are we tell on folks that they need to have.
1: Well, so if you ask all the programs, you know, the most common answer, you know, there's a handful that really want more. And, but there's a lot that are perfectly happy with one and they'll review your application. But if you want to feel like most programs you are going to apply to, are going to give you a fair look, then you want two slows and preferably from two different institutions. But that's not mandatory. You know, there are definitely, again, there are some places that aren't going to look at you. If they are really competitive and they have the option of looking at every, everybody applies to them, they can set as high a bar as they want. They can only look at 250 or higher step scores. They can insist on three slows from three different rotations. They can insist on away rotations. But the majority of the programs out there, if you have a slow, they're gonna give your application a review. But it's better if they have two. As someone who reviews a lot of applications, I really like to see the one home rotation and then the away rotation and see growth from that first one to that second one, especially if that first rotation didn't go that well. Or, d- or went fine, but it was someone's first EM exposure. You know, people worry they get a high pass or even a pass on their first rotation, and that's doesn't that's not a red flag to me. That doesn't scare me off. What I want to see is I want to see a letter from another rotation that showed they got some feedback on the first one, they showed growth, and they're improving because you know I'm not expecting everyone to come in and be great at EM from day one. I certainly wasn't. Most of my residents aren't. Occasionally someone comes through, but most of us, we have to learn and learn to do this job. And showing learning, even in that small interval of a one rotation to a second, is just incredibly important. So it's really nice to have two, to have those two letters. And then whatever else you can get to fill out the application. It can be family medicine, it can be a surgical letter. It doesn't really matter if those pieces are there.
0: Now, I'm going to bring up a topic that is far from anybody's favorite subject, uh, but what do you do if you don't match?
1: So we're now entering sort of the data-free zone. You know, we've been fortunate to have gathered a lot of data in the last few years, both from NRMP, but also from program directors, that's informed a lot of the recommendations. Because, you know, we're trying to put out advice through the Student Advising Task Force that is evidence-based, that there's some data to back up. There is no good data that can tell you what to do. It's a rare enough circumstance, fortunately, and it's hard to collect information on exactly what happens. That being said, this is something we asked everybody, all the program directors at CORD in the last couple of years in a few different ways, what do they recommend people do? You know, what things, and it comes down to when you're looking at someone reapplying to EM, for example, what things make it stand out? And so the, you know, the first thing I tell everybody is you can't make a plan that you're going to scramble into an EM program. There's only going to be a handful of spots, if any, a couple of years ago, there were zero spots unfilled in the country. That's usually less than 20. In most years oftentimes it's less than 10 and those disappear very quickly and it's just not a reasonable plan Um, you need to figure out something else to do Uh, one that's become more popular if you can sort of take the financial hit is to extend medical school if you can stay in school and stay as a student it gives you the ability to do student rotations continue to go out and do additional rotations get some more experience get some better letters That's a hard one for a lot of people to do, but if it's an option, it's probably one worth exploring because as a reapplicant, you immediately get a lot of scrutiny from people who wonder why you didn't match in the first place. Because your other reasonable options are to get into the SOAP, which is the scramble process, that sort of one week of intense back-to-back mini interviews and little mini matches to try and redistribute everybody who didn't match, and get to a program that's going to give you an opportunity to reapply to EM Or if EM wasn't the end-all be-all for you, it's your opportunity to get into something else that might be of interest to you. And then you have to decide what kind of year do you want. Do you want a one-year surgical internship that's gonna be really impressive because they beat you and worked you really hard? Or are you gonna want a three-year categorical internal medicine spot so that if your reapplication doesn't go well, you still have a career, you still have a job, you have a landing spot, you can consider reapplying again or you can reevaluate, and you know there's a, there's a lot of wonderful things you can do in medicine. You know, it's not that you know even though a lot of us feel at this stage like EM is the only thing I could possibly do, it's probably not true. And sort of taking a, a look at your other applicate, your other options, is a, a reasonable thing to do.
0: So we talked about your blog, which again I highly recommend. If you have not yet looked at this, you need to. It is a must to uh, help guide you through the residency application process. But are there any other particularly useful resources that uh, you would recommend to students for in, in, just in terms of advising?
1: There's this really good EM Stud podcast. I'm not sure if you've heard about it, but it's good stuff. Um, there's there's lots of good stuff out there, and there's more and more. Um so in addition to this podcast, I think that our blog is pretty good, but it's only good because it's been taken from, like it's not ideas that were our ideas. It was taken from the collective wisdom of the CDEM folks and the, and the membership of CORD and just sharing what is sort of you know almost common knowledge to the people who attend these meetings and sit on these committees and getting it out there to the students who actually need it and trying to make it useful to them. Um, there's a lot of other things. And the first wave of resources produced by the student advising task force is coming out. Um, they're ones that uh, I'm happy to share with anybody who wants them. They're readily available. and we've got sort of versions that are ready. They've been sort of approved by the kind of the all the stakeholders that are involved. And you know the, there's an applying guide, which is a comprehensive start to finish take you through the entire process. We've got a shorter, more emergency medicine sized uh, frequently asked questions, which is also a really nice document to sort of get your advisors up to date. It's something we you know, recommend for people who are new clerkship directors or new new, uh, new to doing any kind of advising, a good way to just make sure that the numbers you're quoting even, that you're, if you're talking about, you know, how many interviews do you need to do, how many applications, you're actually giving people good data. Um, we've got, uh, a four year student planner, which is really helpful for students from the kind of you know, who are going into this from the very beginning, just making sure they're doing all the things and kind of a timeline it can be a nice resource for emergency medicine interest groups to get a hold of. And then we've been collecting a list of uh, kind of a curated list of resources, kind of doing the work of looking at all the things that are out there and figuring out which ones are helpful. And that's another, you know, a list we put together. We've tried to keep it to one page, but as there's more and more things that are coming out there, we're going to keep adding to it. And then uh, there's a blog that the Council of uh, Council of Residency Directors and EM uh, is putting, the CORD EM blog, um, that's highlighting a lot of these things. And we're going to be putting out updates via sort of through that vehicle as we go, as well as these are all going to be available through CDEM and EMRA. And then we've got uh, you know, lots of other projects in the works as well.
0: Any other last words, thoughts for our students out there?
1: Uh, it's probably going to be okay.
0: Thanks again to Dr. Adam Kellogg with the CORD Student Advisory Task Force and author on the amazingly helpful blog, EM Advisor, located at emadvisor.blogspot.com. For links to the resources mentioned in this episode, visit our website at cdemcurriculum.com, then go to the student section on the main menu. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for more on EM Stud.